The reading tonight is uh, Revelation chapter 6 and most of chapter 7 and page 1237 in the Church Bibles. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, 
tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks, and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. And then uh, the first verse of chapter 8, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and it was quite a relief. Well, what's caught your attention in the news this week, I wonder? I had a day off as usual on Wednesday, and in between my quite successful, actually, fishing expedition with my grandson, Josh and a spot of gardening and various other mundane chores left me by my adoring wife, I read the paper more carefully than usual. And this is what I read about. I read about the struggles in Zimbabwe. It seems to be about who is the winner, in particular, of a disputed election. Who is the conqueror? Does it stem from the conquest of Africa by the imperialist British? It's about the Shona tribe of Mugabe, mainly based in Harare, conquering the Matabele, based in Bulawayo? Or is it about one man's hunger to hang on to power to be the winner? Probably the latter. I read about wars in Iraq, Somalia, Ethiopia, and Gaza, amongst other places. One book I read this week estimates that at any one moment, there have been about a hundred wars going on in the world since the end of World War II. I read about the rise of food prices and the threat of widespread famine that follows. I read about death, the murder of Brees Jones in Liverpool and those who have been arrested and charged with his murder. I read about the girls killed in Ecuador as they traveled on their gap years and tried, no doubt, to help those less fortunate than themselves, like so many of the young people from this church, some of whom are in far-flung parts of the world even now. I read about child abuse in the Mormon sect in the United States. This was just one day's paper. 
I had already begun to think about this sermon from Revelation chapters 6 and 7, but it still came as quite a shock to discover that the seals opened by the Lamb in chapter 6 of Revelation were pretty much exactly the same as my newspaper. Conquest, war, famine, death, martyrdom. God's wrath unleashed on humanity. So I wasn't surprised as I looked into next week's sermon to see that when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence. I also sat in silence for a while as I reflected on what I had read. Well, let's continue. Let me just remind you of a couple of warnings. Hopefully, Matt, you'll put these up on the screen. A couple of warnings just as we get into this quite hard section of the book of Revelation. Imagine, if you like, if you're still in the silence of that half hour, reeling from what you've heard read to you. Two warnings as we study Revelation. First, do not take the numbers literally. Do not take the numbers literally. They are and are intended to be symbolic. For instance, take the 144,000 here of chapter 7. Taken literally, of course, by Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and landing them, therefore, in all sorts of problems. Once, especially once, there were already 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, and Jesus had not come back, despite their predicting that he would have. It became rather less good deal to be a Jehovah's Witness once the 144,000 were in. Beware false prophets, by the way. If you are still not convinced that the numbers are symbolic, then just notice here how John moves from the 144,000 in chapter eight, verse four, sorry, in chapter seven, verse four, uh, to the multitude that no one can count in verse nine. The reason history has not been wound up is because God wishes to add more and more to that great multitude. So that is why things are going on as they are. It isn't that 144,000 is a complete number, of course. It just, it just communicates symbolically completeness. God will have all those that he wants. But history continues while the great multitude from every nation is gathered in. Secondly, do not read Revelation as a chronological forecast of history. If you, end up, if you do do that, you'll end up in hopeless confusion. You will try to place the French Revolution somewhere, you'll be puzzled as to who Napoleon is, and you'll get all the whole thing mixed up with Hitler and the Third Reich, and you'll have forgotten about Rome and Nero and Babylon and all the rest of it. So don't do it. What is the book of Revelation then? The book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. We're told that in chapter 1, verse 1. You've already had that in these sermons. In other words, it teaches us more about the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And secondly, it is a revelation of what must take place after this. This is in chapter 4, verse 1. What must take place after the Christ event? It's a revelation of that. What the book of Revelation does is to throw light on what the world is going to be like between the first coming of Christ and his return. And in summary, 
that time will be marked by a continuation of both humanity's appalling wickedness, which is charted in chapter 6, and by the gradual spreading of the light of God's truth, specifically as the gospel is preached and the faithful are gathered in. Now let's just get back to the text itself that we're looking at here. Chapters 6 to 16 look at the plight of humanity, the situation in the world, the state of the world, from four different angles. It's not chronological. Don't think it's chronological. One commentator, Paul Barnett, helpfully summarizes it like this, and it's going to come up on the screen. Chapters 6 and 7, which we've read this evening, the seals look at the world closely and depict the world essentially as a tyranny. It's about the tyrant rule of individuals. Chapters 8 to 11, the seven trumpets, depict it as chaos. Chapters 12 to 14 depict it as persecution, the seven signs, that is. And chapters 15 to 16, the seven plagues, depict it as destruction. So it's the same world, the same state of the world, looked at it four different ways under those headings. It's quite a helpful way of looking at it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at each of those in turn. This evening, we're confronted in chapters 6 and 7 by the horrors of tyranny, signs of which we continue to see all around us today, as I've said. And then John points us in chapter 7, gloriously, to the certainty of salvation from all these horrors. Jesus, as we've already seen in the sermon last week, is both the lion, a noble king, and a lamb, an impotent victim. He is the only one worthy to open the scrolls and to open the seals it contained. And David explained that to us brilliantly last week in his sermon. He showed that uh, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and the, and the seals because of his death on the cross, which brings each one of us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But as David said, the cross also signifies the defeat forever of the powers of darkness. The last battle is not some future Armageddon. The last battle has been fought and has been won at Calvary. So we must view human history, what's happening between Christ's first coming and his return, we must view it through the camera lens, if you like, of the cross. Think of the history of the last couple of hundred years. We can now officially abandon the evolutionary optimism of the 19th century. That evolutionary optimism led to an overconfidence in the omnipotence of science and uh, led to all sorts of difficulties. The 20th century traumatized those optimists as tyrant after tyrant destroyed the hope that the world would somehow become a utopia. Uh, we can also abandon the, uh, the 20th century philosophy of existentialism, which led to many of the ex existentialists committing suicide, or led to their nihilism, morally, 
and more relevantly perhaps for us now, that philosophy led to the secular materialism of our times here in the West, which says that life is all you get, so eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Now there's uh, a neat summary of the last 200 years of modern history um, for you. It gets you approximately a 2-2 degree, that by the way. <laughs> and of course there's a lot more to it than that. But here we are between the great victory of the cross and its consummation when Christ returns. And what did John see as he looked at that period of history where we're called to a realism, not an, not an optimism of the evolutionists, nor the pessimism of the existentialists, but to a realism, to a biblical realism. What did John see? He saw first four horsemen, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they ride out into this period of history here in chapter 6, this inter interim time. And at first, at first glance, when you first read it, when you heard it read this evening, they all seem to bring tyranny and ruin. The white horseman brings conquest. The red horseman brings war. The black horseman brings raging inflation and famine. And the pale horseman brings death and hell. The scenario becomes even more grim, for the fifth seal is open, and it reveals that even the followers of the Lamb will suffer martyrdom and death, verses 9 to 11. And the sixth seal reveals that the earth itself and all who live in it, from rulers like Saddam Hussein or Robert Mugabe to the poorest beggar sleeping in the cardboard boxes behind Sainsbury's and ourselves included, all, free men and slaves, all, will come under God's judgment. What John sees, it seems to me, is a very accurate picture of the last 2,000 years of history. And I would suggest that our 21st century realism should mean that we should have an expectation that this is the reality that we will face in this world in the future until Christ's return. There is no socialist or scientific utopia but there is also no reason to despair. And there are some reasons why that is so. Three reasons, if they can come up, Matt. Thanks. No reason to despair. Why? Because, one, the white horseman is, of course, Jesus. The white horseman is Jesus. White in the book of uh, color and is important in the symbols of Revelation. And white in the book of Revelation is always uh, a color for righteousness. So the white horse is a righteous horse. He has crowns and conquest with him. These are symbols that belong to Jesus. If you doubt me, just turn on for a moment to chapter 19 and verse 11. Where we meet the white horseman again. Let me read these glorious verses. 19.11 I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The white horse is Jesus. And Jesus rides at the head of his army. Who is his army? You and me, of course. You and me. And as Sean said in the introduction to this series of sermons, what is the book of Revelation all about? Well, it can be summed up in two words. We win. We win. Here is Jesus, the white horseman, riding as the Lord of history. Do not despair, secondly, because there have been and will be many who are saved. Chapter 7 is about the rescue of people, both from before Christ's coming and afterwards, those who will be with him forever. Commentators, of course, have a great deal to argue about in the book of Revelation, and they argue about exactly the identity of the 144,000. Some say they are the saints of the Old Testament, Israel. Thus, the closed number, and of course, the reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in verses 5 to 8. By this reading, the great multitudes of verse 9 are therefore the Gentile believers, you and me, who are being saved even in our own times here at St. Andrews and thousands daily all around the world. But others say that the two uh, divisions, the 144,000 and the great multitudes, are really the same people. Uh, just 144,000 symbolically are assembled like soldiers in battle array going into battle behind their king. Uh, that is the church militant, if you like. Uh, this is what John Stott argues. While in the second picture, they are assembled as the church triumphant in heaven. It doesn't really matter. The point is that there, are, there have been and there will be many who are saved. So do not despair. Thirdly, do not despair because this salvation is secure and absolute. Just look again at chapter 7 and verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In other words, the very things that characterize chapter 6 are absent in this salvation experience in chapter 7. It should be possible for us to imagine what a comfort those words must have been to the tiny Christian groups caught up in the mass persecution of both Jews and Christians at the end of the first century. For many of those people, their destiny was to be the climax of the entertainment in the arena as they were fed to wild animals in front of baying crowds of bloodthirsty pagans. 
That is what was happening to their friends. And John's revelation says, God will wipe away every tear. There must have been many tears in those first Christians' lives. God will wipe them away. But do not think that experience has ended. You might like, as you leave this evening, to pick up in the porch a copy of the uh, Christian Solidarity Worldwide magazine. It's called Response. And you will read there still of the tears shed by Christians being persecuted for their faith, even as we sit here comfortably in St. Andrews. So here we are in Oxford in 2008, reading and in some, kind, in some cases tasting the reality of this fallen world. Why is there so much suffering? Why is this so? Why is the world such a mess? Why are these wars still going on? Why is there famine? Why is there persecution? If Jesus is the white horseman and the Lord of history, why does he not call a halt to the pain right now? Surely he could do that and put an end to all this suffering. Peter answered that question in his second letter, and he wrote like this, perhaps in slightly different language to what John or Paul would use, but the same idea. Do not forget this one thing, wrote Peter. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It will happen. So when you visit Auschwitz, or as we did last week when we visited the Czech Republic, we visited a little village outside Prague called Lidice, a village utterly destroyed by the Nazis in the Second World War in retaliation to the assassination by uh, two Czech soldiers parachuted into Prague of the Nazi governor of Prague. All the people of this village, or virtually all of the people, were massacred. When you experience that, or when you read about genocide in Rwanda, or when you watch a documentary on the savagery of the so-called Lord's Liberation Army, or when you receive an email from Christian Solidarity Worldwide telling you about the arrest of a Christian pastor in Vietnam, or the martyrdom of Christians in Turkey, which came so close to us here last year because of our mission partners there, or even as you hear about the tragic death of gap year girls in Ecuador, do not ask what is God doing or where has he gone, but remember that this is exactly, exactly how God told us it would be while he builds his kingdom. It is exactly what he said would happen. Do not be surprised, therefore, as if something strange were happening to you. This is how it has always been, and this is how it will always be until the end, because God is patient with rebellious humanity and longs for us to be called in to that great multitude that no one can number. So what should we do in response to this reality? What should we do? Three things as I close. Firstly, get saved. 
If ever a sermon should persuade you to become a Christian, this is the moment, I can tell you. This is the moment. John Stock puts it like this. We cannot possibly stand before God's dazzling throne in the soiled and tattered rags of our own morality, but only if we have sought cleansing from the Lamb who died for us. In the face of this moral mayhem in which we live, do not try and stand before God in the soiled and tattered rags of your own morality. Turn away from your man-centered understanding of the universe and believe God's revelation. It seems to match what is happening around us. Believe it. Believe it. This is history as God writes it and as he reveals it to us. Get saved. Put your trust in Jesus. Secondly, build the kingdom. Build the kingdom. The savagery that we inflict upon one another in our fallen humanity is indeed shocking. But, but you and I and all humanity are made in God's image. Within us is God's creative genius. Within us is the power to love and do good. We are God's image. Despite this horror, you and I have the potential in the power of his spirit to do his work. We can be great for God. So follow the white horseman, enlist in his army, and fight with him. And thirdly, and with this I close, worship and do just what they did in chapter 7. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. With this perspective on history, with this understanding of high humanity, we can make sense of the world in which we live. And with God's help, we can be part of the solution to the, suf to the suffering and not just the victims of it. Let's worship God together. Johnny.